0: may be seated. Continuing our sermon series in Luke's gospel, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 5, or the the text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin, and across the page you'll see a bit of an outline of the gospel and a map for where, where things are going on. Picking up in verse 1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But as you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God and amazement, seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at, a tax, at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And they said to him the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Lord, move in our hearts as we hear, change us, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Have you guys ever been in a relationship that was basically just purely transactional, You know i i got something to give you that you need you've got something to give me that i need and we just sort of transact back and forth and that's pretty much the extent of the relationship just this basic exchange you know there's there's nothing inherently wrong with that in fact sometimes i really like my relationships to be just transactional i when i'm in the grocery store and at checkout i want to give you money and you give me eggs and orange juice and we just move on with our day and i remember when i was in south carolina for a few years, I remember it took me so long to get used to the fact that this sweet lady in the checkout didn't think that way about transactions. She thought that we wanted to exchange life stories and so on. And as a Northeasterner, I just like nice transactional stuff in times like that. But of course, transactional relationships are very limited because once you've transacted, that's pretty much the end of the relationship. And you know that transactionalism can actually destroy more intimate relationships. If you have a friend, and you only ever hear from this friend when that friend needs something, that is gonna put a real strain on the relationship after a while. Transactionalism will destroy a romance. If it's just about what, you know, we sort of have mutually desirable goods to give each other, that, that will not sustain romantic love at all, because in our deepest relationships, it isn't just that we have, you know, you need something from me, I need something from you. In our deepest relationships, we actually come to a place where we love the excellences in each other I've seen excellence in you and I love it and we together love excellent things that's a whole deeper level than just transacting in some way some sort of exchange well it is easy I think to read the gospels the four gospels and in fact it's easy to approach Christianity more generally I think in a transactional mode to kind of read through the stories of Jesus. And, you know, we're watching Jesus, and we're kind of asking ourselves, so what does Jesus do for people? What did Jesus do for people when he was on the earth? What does Jesus do for me or for us now? And what does Jesus want from us? And we kind of have this idea, he's got some benefits we need, and what does he want from us kind of in return for that? And just have this sort of exchange view of, of, of Jesus and, and what's going on. But the, the, the whole storyline of the Bible, as you trace it, is that God, it shows us that God, who, by the way, needs nothing. We have absolutely nothing to offer God at all. And God, being that God who needs nothing, he wants a people to live with and to fellowship with. And there's no transaction, because we don't have anything to give him, but he wants to be with us and to fellowship with his people. He wants his people just to know him and to show them his infinite excellencies, his boundless perfections. And what he wants to happen is as his people are in fellowship with him and they're enjoying life with him, he wants their lives over time to, to shine back his own excellence, to mirror his glory as we describe it. He wants these people to love him and enjoy him and, and love what he loves. That's so much more than a transactional relationship. That's what God's after. That's what the Messiah, the great long-awaited savior of the world, Israel's Messiah, the world's savior, that's what Messiah is going to do when he comes, the Bible leads us to expect. Messiah, it comes to destroy what separates us from God. To break the barriers to fellowship and reconciliation. He comes to bring us back into life with God. And that's why as we look at Jesus, who is the Messiah, you'll notice here in chapter 5 that after one chapter of solo operating. So chapter 4 is important because that's the chapter Jesus is all by himself. He's just doing his thing alone as the Messiah. And he's demonstrating his authority over all things visible and invisible. But after that one chapter of Jesus doing his own thing, we find here in chapter 5, he turns now to really the heart of his mission, which is to gather a people. To start gathering what the Bible calls disciples, followers, dare I say, fellowshippers with God. Now, I want to just reflect through these stories on who are these people? And what happens when they meet Jesus? And what's the reaction of the religious establishment when they meet Jesus? Who are they? What happens when they meet Jesus? What's the reaction of the religious establishment? Now, we're going to start with what I think we could call a paradigm case. You guys know what a paradigm is? Uh, kind of a model that sets the tone for kind of a whole bunch of other stuff that will be kind of like it. Well, the, the, the first story here, uh, beginning in verse 1, it is a kind of paradigm case. This, this, this bloke is destined in time to become a pillar of a worldwide church of Jesus people. But you sure wouldn't know it in this story. We're going to start with Sinful Simon. Sinful Simon. Now in your bulletin on page, I think it's 11, you've got a map, and you'll notice that we are way on the north. The, the, lake, uh, Gennes- the lake of Gennesaret is essentially the same as the... the it's the same as the Lake of uh, Sea of Galilee, we often call it, and somewhere up on that north coast near Capernaum, Jesus is ministering on the lake, and um, you'll notice in the outline below that this whole part of Luke's gospel, part two of the gospel, is all about the, north, the northern ministry, what Jesus does up here in this northern region. And you'll notice as we open that the, the, the ministry up there, partly because it's involved a lot of miracles, it is drawing massive crowds. Lots of people are flocking to Jesus. Now, you, we should not necessarily confuse the crowds with disciples, but they're coming. They may not necessarily be disciples, but they are coming in, in, in droves. Well, it gets to, be a, there gets to be an audio problem. You know, Jesus is trying to talk to all these people, and he just sort of can't project the way he wants to. And so he's on the lake, and so he, uh, he, he decides there are these big fishing boats there, and he decides this, this will be a way to, to proceed. And it's interesting. This, so, this boat belongs to a guy named Simon. And Jesus is he's respectful of Simon's trade. He doesn't just, you know, take the boat. Uh, but Simon's over there with his buddies washing the nets after, you know, that's what they do in the daytime because you can't, fish during, can't catch fish during the day. It's a nighttime thing. So they're washing their nets. And Jesus summons, uh, Simon says, can I use your boat? And he's respectful. And so Simon, you know, he's got a lot to do, but fine. He sits and he gets a front row seat as Jesus preaches for a while. And then after Jesus has finished teaching, and Simon's just kind of sitting there patiently waiting to get back to washing his nets, listening, Jesus then does something there in verse 4 where this is quite literally rocking the boat at a whole other level. Simon never saw this coming. Jesus says, all right, Simon, now, here's what we're going to do. Take, take us out to the middle of the lake, and we're going we're to go fishing. We're going to drop our nets and go fishing. Are we, Jesus? Now, it's interesting. Simon, you know, he has just sat and listened to Jesus preach, and he's figured out, he's a, you know, he's an Israelite. He's figured out, clearly, this man must be some kind of prophet of God. He he opens the scriptures well. He speaks of God well. And so Simon's been impressed. He's been sitting on the boat listening to this guy now for a while. And so he addresses him as master. And I don't know if Simon is sort of just humoring Jesus here, you know, when he says at your word, you know, I've listened to you. You speak well. I should probably let you know before we go. We we've been fishing all night. You know, the time when you catch fish um and nothing. So, you know, just little professional word from the experts Um, he's professionally quite dubious but you know this man speaks of God and speaks for God so fine your word will go out they go out in the middle of the lake he and his but uh, he and his friends and they drop their their nets big nets and then something just insane happens because they barely got the nets in the water in broad daylight and all of a sudden those nets are yanked down and pulled taut and they are filling up with fish to the point where these thick ropey nets are actually starting to break. and. Panic ensues, and he's yelling to his friends, come over and help us. And they come and help and they start loading up. Now these are massive boats. These are twenty-six foot by six and a half foot wide fishing boats, and they're just hauling fish into the boat, and they have so many fish in this boat that boats start to sink. Water's coming up over the sides. And as all this mayhem is going on, Simon looks over at Jesus. And I imagine Jesus just kind of sitting there in the middle of all these flopping smelly fish, just kind of smiling at this whole thing. And Simon has this jolt go through him, and he realizes this person, sitting in my now sinking boat, just told hundreds of fish what to do, and they did it. And salty man of the sea that he is, Simon is enough of an Israelite that his insides come unglued when he realizes I think, I don't know how this can possibly be, I think God is sitting in my fishing boat. And he uses a very different title as he falls on his knees before Jesus says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is the first time that that title is ever used in directly addressing Jesus in Luke's gospel. You're the Lord. You are that coming one foretold by the prophets whose holiness, as one commentator says, causes moral agony to the sinner. I'm in the presence of the Holy God. And his response in that moment is not, wow, with this guy in my boat, I'm about to be the envy of all fishermen. That's how the transactionalist would think. His response is that I cannot stand in your presence. Please leave me. I am sinful, O Lord. Who is this man? Before the world, Simon's a fisherman. Before the Lord he is a sinner and in the Lord's presence he feels it. He feels his sin. He's really undone and how does Jesus relate with him? It's interesting that Jesus' response is is all grace. I think Jesus probably has a big smile on his face. "Don't, Don't be afraid, Simon. Don't be afraid. He assures this trembling fisherman of his mercy. You have nothing to fear from me. In all my holiness, I am the one you think, but you have nothing to fear for me. He extends mercy. And with that mercy, you'll notice there's also a mission. Because he says, Simon, from now on, look around. See what's happening here? You're going to start catching men, catching people. This will be fun. Mercy and a mission. And these dumbstruck fishermen who have just had quite a day By the Sea of Gennesaret, they just drop the nets and boats and they just follow Jesus. And Sinful Simon is a paradigm of all discipleship. This is what happens with disciples they have an encounter with God's mercy through Jesus. And in receiving mercy from Jesus, they receive a mission. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, Sinful Simon's story prepares us now for what I'm going to call a series of conflicted cleansings. Conflicted cleansings. His story prepares us for a cluster of three further characters, and their stories show us more about the kind of people that Jesus has come to make his own, to bring into the people of God. And these stories show us the kinds of mercy that Jesus ministers to these people, and crucially for the rest of Luke's gospel— they also show us the growing disturbance that all of this is creating in the religious establishment. So let's look at the leper for a second. Now, I've said before to you guys that when the Bible talks about leprosy, it's not probably talking about what we call today Hansen's disease, this disease where your body parts begin to rot and fall off. It's really quite awful. But any kind of serious skin disease or disfigurement was called leprosy. And so this man is full of some kind of skin ailment, and to understand who he is, we have to recall a curious and I think actually very uncomfortable feature in the Torah, the law of Moses, and that feature that I'm referring to was something called ritual impurity, ritual impurity. You might remember, and these are the parts of Leviticus that make you kind of a little bit, Israelites could become unclean even if they hadn't sinned they could become unclean, they could become defiled, and in Israelite terms, that meant you were not allowed to be in God's presence. You could not be with God if you were defiled. Well, they could become unclean either by moral impurity, which would be a sin against the law, right? They would break the law in some way. That would, that would be a, a moral impurity, or they could become ritually impure. And this would happen when they would have bodily contact With things that seem to represent a loss of wholeness. So God made humans whole. And there are things that degenerate and deteriorate that wholeness. And if your body touched things that represented loss of wholeness, it defiled you. The obvious one would be what? A dead body. Death. Various forms of death. The ultimate loss of wholeness, right? Bodily discharges. I will not detail these. Various ways in which the body would give out life fluids that could represent a loss of human wholeness, or deformities, or diseases like skin disease. If, if you touched these things, it made you ritually impure. So not just sin, God was teaching Israel, not just moral transgression, but also these damages and distortions that result from sin being in the world, all of that's foreign to God. All of that is alien to God's holiness, God's wholeness. And those things barred Israel from living with God and living in with his holy people in his holy place. And what is God doing is he's teaching Israel, he is showing them through ritual purity These ritual purity laws that when they were ritually pure, they were separated from everything that is unlike God. Jonathan Clowns has done some wonderful work on this. They were physically, as well as morally, separated from everything that's unlike God, including, obviously, skin disease. Well, that's this man. Now, unlike the next two characters we're going to hear about, this unclean man, this unfit man, who cannot dwell with God's holy people and God's holy place with God— He comes to Jesus. He actually comes. He initiates. He comes seeking mercy. And you'll notice the mercy that he receives is the mercy of favor. He says these words. They're so full of feeling. He says, Lord, if you will. I don't doubt you can. He's heard enough to know Jesus can. If you will. If you want to. You can make me clean. And I just love Jesus' words. He doesn't miss the point. He says, I I will. I will. He wants this man to be clean. He wants him to come back. And he reaches across the uncleanness barrier. This is unbelievable. This holy man, this holy Jew, reaches across that barrier of uncleanness and he touches this man's disfigured skin. He says, be clean. And he cleanses him. The mercy of favor. And with that mercy, a mission. This is quite a mission. He sends this man on a mission to the priests. What on earth is going on here? He says, you keep quiet about this, but you go show yourself to the priests and you, do, you make an offering as Moses commanded as a proof to them. This is interesting. What's going on? Well, to use language from the historian Tom Holland, Jesus, you might not realize it, he is dropping a depth charge. <laughs> in the religious establishment of Israel. Because in Torah, you can read this later in Leviticus 14, in Torah, when a leper was cleansed, the acting priest at the time had two roles in that cleansing. One was he, the priest, would examine the leper, the former leper, and pronounce, you're clean. Then the priest at the tabernacle would receive this worshiper bringing a guilt offering because once you were cleansed you had to offer a guilt offering and the priest would receive that guilt offering for the worshiper. And Jesus sends this man to the the priests of Israel to, to do the second thing, to offer the guilt offering. But Jesus has done the first thing. So what's the proof? What's the testimony he's sending this man he, the guy's just going to show up and offer his guilt offering but I guarantee you the first question on the mouth, on the, in the mouth of that priest when he gets there is going to be who pronounced you clean? What priest did that? Well there's a new priest in town who can cleanse lepers. Jesus says you go let them know. You put them on notice. There's a new priest and the authorities are on notice by the appearance of this man. There's a new priest in Israel. So there's the mercy and The mission of the leper, how about the paralytic? I love this story. So unlike the leper story, which is a very private audience, you know, this is a big, big public thing. There are a whole bunch of people in this building. I don't know where they're meeting exactly. There are Pharisees, teachers of the law from everywhere, as far away as Jerusalem, way in the south. They've all gathered. They're trying to scope this guy out, this new miracle worker. And um, there's, we kind of step away from that for a minute, and there's this man. I'm going to call him Zeke just so we can give the guy a name. Zeke. Zeke the paralytic, We know absolutely nothing about Zeke, except that he has got some really devoted friends who have heard about Jesus, and one day, Zeke's lying there, as paralytics are wont to do, and they said, Zeke, we're going to go see Jesus. So they grab his bed, they get up, walk away with his bed, Zeke's just kind of bouncing around, they make their way off to this place, and they get there, and they're expecting to see Jesus, have their friend Zeke healed, and they get there, of course, they can't get in, the crowd is immense. So, they're like, you know, these guys are serious, and they're like, oh, roof it is zeke just be cool we're going up on top so they head up to the roof i guess zeke's just chilling you know he's already what's he gonna do fall and break his neck he's already a paralytic so he just kind of lies there and they go up on the roof and they start ripping up the ceiling tiles and the pharisees and scribes and getting dust on their heads and what's going on jesus looks up here comes this pallet being lowered down to the roof i wonder if jesus smiled again and he sees man these friends really believe You've got to be pretty serious in your faith in Jesus if you're going to pull a stunt like this. And so he responds to their faith. He responds accordingly, and he says, be healed. Oh, no, he does not. I think that's what everyone expected. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Say what? It's kind of like cleansing lepers. Kind of like commanding fish. This is a God thing. God forgives sins, and the Pharisees are not buying it. What is this man is speaking blasphemies? Who does he? What did you just say? And again, Jesus knows the heart. That's always the problem with Jesus. Try hiding from Jesus. He knows the heart. And he just hits these Pharisees square in the face with one of his confounding questions. One of the things that drives you crazy in reading the Gospels is Jesus asks questions. That it's not easy to figure out how to answer them. He says, which is easier? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now, how do you answer that question? I sat and thought about it quite a while, and so has every commentator I've read on this passage, because there's no obvious answer. In one sense, they're both easy to say. (laughs) I could stand here and say, your sins are forgiven. I could say, you know, rise and walk. But here's the problem. They're actually both really hard, and here's why. Because you have the chance to lose a ton of credibility with either one of these. Because if you're going to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, you had better have divine power, or you're going to look like a fool. If y'all brought a paralytic in here and I said, rise and take up your bed and walk, and the guy just lies there, you would say, awkward. Pastor Miller doesn't have the power, obviously, and I don't, and so I shouldn't say such things. So to make that statement is really putting your reputation on the line, and so is speaking something as insane as your sins are forgiven you, because if you're going to do that, you had better have God's authority, or you're blaspheming. And Jesus says, okay, I'll say both. He has the authority to forgive sins, and he authenticates that authority by showing divine power and making the man pick up his bed and walk away. He authenticates that he has God's power by demonstrating, that he has God's authority to forgive by demonstrating God's power. And again, you just imagine, this just rocks the establishment, the uproar. The leper received the mercy of favor. The paralytic receives the mercy of forgiveness. It is interesting that his actual need is not to have his paralysis healed. is to have his sins forgiven. He's a sinner. What's his mission? Because every disciple has a mission. Jesus says, just go walk. And he goes and he glorifies God. How does he glorify God? By living in the freedom of a forgiven Man. He has been released from the root cause of his misery, which is his sins have been forgiven. He is now loved by God, forgiven by God. He belongs to God, and so he can just go live his life in the freedom of a forgiven man. He's received the mercy of forgiveness. How about this tax collector, Levi? Well, it's noteworthy here. It's not so much his brokenness that we see, like with the leper. It's not his personal sins, as with the paralytic, although those sins are never identified. Levi's a little different. Levi is a man who is deeply involved in and deeply tainted by a corrupt culture. He's a man of the world. He's working with the Gentile overlords. Now I know how much you all are really annoyed about the tax price, the you know the gas prices and the tax hikes. I hear you complain. You ought to be under Roman rule. People didn't like it any more than you like it, and people are very upset in general at the fact they're still under the heel of this pagan power, and these Jews <laughs> working with the Gentile overlords, this did not go over well, and we also know from John the Baptizer's ministry, there was a lot of shady business. He told the tax collectors, don't take more than you're authorized to take, because they did quite often, so Levi is in a, he's in a nasty cultural business. He's he's, he's a man of the world. So I guess, you know, you want to think about who's Levi today. Whoever your tribe sees as the deplorables, whoever your tribe, I don't know what your tribe is, but I probably do. (laughs) Whatever your tribe is, whoever they view as those people ruining society and ruining the world, this is that guy. And what does Jesus do? Well, Levi likely doesn't know a whole lot about Jesus. He maybe heard some stories. He certainly is not looking to be with Jesus. He's just trying to collect taxes. Thank you very much. But Jesus walks over to the tax booth and hits him in the face with this astounding mercy, and he says, follow me. Now, what's happening here? Can you imagine this? This guy's just sitting there collecting taxes. Follow me. This man, it's easy to focus here on the command. You know, Jesus is Lord. He can tell people what to do. But I'd like to suggest another angle is it possible that Jesus walking over to this deplorable and saying follow me, is it possible this is an act a mercy of friendship? Is it possible that what he's saying to Levi is, I want you, nasty character that you are, I want you to be with me? Well, Levi certainly seems to receive this as an act of friendship because the very next thing that he does, you'll notice, is he walks away from this shady business and starts following Jesus as he throws a feast he throws this celebratory joining of all his friends to meet his new friend. And through him, you'll notice in verse 29, Jesus extends friendship to all these other deplorables. There's <laughs> this whole crowd of, you know, tax collectors and corrupt people and sinners and the, and the Pharisees, you know, this is just, Jesus, it's very clear. Jesus says later to the Pharisees, he's not denying these are sick people. They are sinners. They need repentance. He's not glossing over that. But the mercy by which Jesus is calling them, is the mercy of friendship. He sits and has table table friendship with them. And Levi's mission is just to bring all of his crowd to feast with Jesus, to join Jesus in extending friendship to the people who are already his friends, to introduce his friends to his new Lord. That's discipleship. And now the religious establishment, they just openly grumble. That word grumble there's a lot of that in Israel's history. When Israel grumbles against the Lord, it's not a good thing, and they just grumble. You're, what is happening? What a mess. And that brings us to the conclusion the wine and the wineskins. You know this well. The upshot of this little parable about the wine and the wineskins, the wedding garment, the new garment, the new, new cloth, and the old garment the upshot of this is God's doing a new thing. It's time for fresh wedding garments time for new wineskins because the bridegroom of Israel is here to renew his covenant with his bride. He's here to bring new wine, to bring the new covenant, to reestablish his kingdom, to bring the jubilee. We talked about this last week. After 77s of years, debts released, slaves freed, inheritance restored. The jubilee is here. The Messiah has arrived. It's time For celebrating this new thing, the Jubilee should be a time of joy, It should be a time of excitement, and receiving this new work of God. The next, we're not going to read these, but the next two episodes in the gospel are about Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, and the, and the, the leaders are mad about it. Jesus is here to bring nourishment, he's here to bring relief and healing, and they're angry because you're breaking Sabbath. So, there's this whole thing with the establishment. Now, as Luke rolls the cameras on this new thing that God is doing, I think he mostly wants his friend Theophilus, to whom he's writing, and us as we hear, he wants us, I think, mostly to identify with the disciples, these new Jesus people. And I think you and I can relate to these Jesus people, because Jesus people are always marked by three things they're always humbled before God. Can I ask you guys, are you humbled before God? you know a little bit about what Simon's talking about when he says, I'm a sinner, depart from me, O Lord? That's that's Jesus' people. They're humbled before God. They're gladdened by grace. Jesus' people are gladdened by grace. Grace to themselves, grace to other people. It makes them glad when God gives grace. And the third thing you see about Jesus' people is they're mobilized for mission. They're mobilized for mission. You see that in verse 35. Because Jesus says, you know, there will come a time when these Wedding guests, my disciples, they, they'll, they'll fast. It'll come. You know, Jesus fasted in his wilderness campaign against the devil, and his disciples will be in the teeth of the devil and his minions, and they will fast. They will endure hardness. They will have to be sustained by the new wine of the gospel and some very tough things, but the Jesus' people are mobilized for mission because they're so gladdened by grace. So I think that's mostly what, Je- what Luke wants us to identify with, is the Jesus people. This is what they look like. This is what it's like when they meet Jesus. But at the same time, and with this, I'll wrap, there is a kindly note of warning that is steadily rising in this gospel. And it's still a warning we need to hear today. And it is as you're watching the cameras roll on this new thing God is doing, don't be like these Pharisees. We can become so comfortable, and in fact, we can become so self assured in some way that God has done things, we're neither humbled nor gladdened by what God is now doing. There are a lot of churches that are so comfortable and so self-assured in what God has done. They are not humbled by, nor are they gladdened by, what God is actually now doing. Don't be like the Pharisees. It's good to love certain forms of God's kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. God's kingdom takes certain forms. It's good to love those forms. It's good to love the blessings and privileges that come to us as God's people and to kind of relax into that and enjoy it. Nothing wrong with any of that. It is possible to love those forms. It is possible to love those blessings and those privileges more than you love the king and more than you love the people that he has come to make his own. God grants that we at Trinity Church will never be that kind of church, but always open to the king and what he's doing and the people who's come to make his own. Well, you guys look like you've run out of endurance for this heat. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this, these stories, these people, above all your mercy and the mission that comes with it. Continue to guide us, Lord, to receive and delight in your mercy and walk in your mission in Jesus' good name. Amen.